All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're coming back to a new chapter that we started studying last week. I know we had a lot of people away for the retreat. We had like 20 people away, so we're going to do a little bit of review because I want to make sure they're all up on the speed with us. But um, this is a text of scripture that we started looking at last week. We got through verses 1 through 4. We're going to really primarily focus on 5 and 6 this morning, but I'll do some review, like I said. The theme... The theme of this passage is really an incredible warning. If you look on your sermon notes, it's a warning against overconfidence in your liberty. A warning. It's an alert. It's like, be aware. I often go back to my 1960s childhood, lost in space, warning, warning, Will Robinson, the robot. You know, that, this is what this passage is about. It's in the sense of trying to get you to be alert regarding the liberty that you have in Jesus Christ. And I'm excited about this text because I think this is a really strong passage regarding deep doctrine. And I love to learn. And I've thought, been thinking about that. And I want to make it something that I pass on to you. I hope our congregation always wants to learn. It's, um, it, it's something I love to do. I love to read. I love to study. And I love to learn new things. And I would say as a pastor, I've never come to the point where I've arrived And it's been wonderful for me to come into this text of Scripture and to see the layout of verses 1 to 4. If you weren't with us last week, I'm going to repeat it again. It was mind-blowing for me to see when I actually put this together how verses 1 to 4 really, really function in regards to understanding my Christian position. And so as we come to this um, text, let's read it again. And we're going to look at verses 1 to 6 in... um, as a unit, and show how, again, it all fits with verses 1 to 13. So verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, our ignorant brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized in the Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, verse 3 says. And verse 4, And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock, which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things happened as an example for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. And what we're bringing into this passage now of liberty is this doctrine about being well pleased. Look at verse 5. With most of them, God was not well pleased. And it's, if I'm putting my theology together here, I'm putting my theology of liberty, and I'm saying this is something that I have to understand. If I'm free in Christ, this concept of me pleasing God, becoming acceptable to God, and how I live it out is going to be a key part of it. There's a passage in Scripture that I always think about And I want you to think about 2 Corinthians. We're going to look at it later, but I'll just say it right now. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. And I challenge you right now. Is that your ambition? Do you want to be pleasing to God? Pleasing to him. That you are concerned about making God happy. And, you know, most of the time I'm more worried about making me happy. Um, that's my orientation. I'm sure it's often your orientation. 
But God wants us to have a mindset of making him happy. And so as we go into this this text, I realize that this is not an easy subject because it's calling you to be accountable. And you know, when we talk about coming to church and trying to have church growth and welcoming people in the church, telling people that they're going to be held accountable and that they have to please God or pleasing themselves is not always the most warm and fuzzy thing. I recently was told, hey, if you want to grow your church, you, don't, you want to make sure people feel welcome, they feel loved, they, they, and they get all those warm and fuzzies. And I know that. And if you're visiting with us this morning, look, we want to make you feel loved and we want to make you understand God cares for you. He, he, we believe he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to pay the penalty for sin so you can have eternal life. And that when you come into a fellowship with Jesus, you come into fellowship with us and we're going to love you and we're going to care for you. But there are some hard doctrines and sometimes it gets a little bit tedious and it gets a little bit you know, pressurized and so recognize that this is one of those texts that it's going to say, listen, I'm expecting something from you. I'm expecting you to understand your accountability before God. And so when we go through this, I don't want anybody to be shocked, and I don't want anyone to say, oh my, this is just like too much, because this is really what God is expecting. And, and we want to recognize that there is a high level of expectation. And so as we go through this, it gets a little bit tedious. Um, I came across this joke, okay? This is a joke. I've been told it's very important to introduce my jokes because I don't always transition it as well. So this is a joke. A preacher was well into his sermon when he noticed that his young son was standing on the edge of the balcony. And it just happens to be my son's up on the balcony today, all right? And the boy was throwing little balls of paper onto the heads of people in the congregation. And the alarmed pastor was about to command his son to stop when the boy called out to his father encouragingly, don't worry, dad. Just keep preaching, and I'll keep them awake. Okay? So that's Josh. That's your responsibility. If you guys have spitballs coming down upon you today, Josh has been given that designation to keep you guys awake. All right? All right. All right. Listen. Um, I know, I believe it's a sin to bore people with the Word of God. I don't want to do that at all. But I really want you to put your thinking hats on, so this, I don't want this to be boring. Listen, we've been working through this... Uh, this section. If you haven't been with us, chapters 8, 9, and 10 have been really mind-blowing when you understand all three chapters work on this doctrine, this doctrine of liberty. And liberty refers to the fact that we have freedom in Jesus Christ. It's an incredible liberating doctrine. It deals with the fact that we don't earn our salvation. There's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation, and we're now free from works trying to keep our salvation because Jesus paid it all and now that we're free there's no fear of us losing our salvation and that doctrine even goes deeper in the sense that when we recognize we recognize this concept of freedom we came to an understanding that there is no more slavery for us we're being called to freedom freedom from having sin be our master and last week I brought up this, this image. This is Patrick Henry. And I know you can't see. I used two pictures last week. This one and another one. So I'm just going to go with this one. This is from the great speech that Patrick Henry gave in the American um, Revolution. Give me liberty or give me death. And one of the things that really blew me away when I went back and I looked at this speech, you know, this great line that I heard as a little boy 
way back in the 60s. I mean, that's something I can always remember. Give me liberty or give me death. I love it. Even I don't even know what it means. It was all about his speech dealt with the fact that he did not want to be a slave to King George. Okay? He didn't want to be... And this speech goes into this, and he talks about slavery. And this all of a sudden made me start thinking, as we're talking about liberty, when I came into the passage, what we saw in verses 1 to 4, and I'll tie that back in a second, of how this passage deals with slavery. And that's why I brought up this picture. And, and this is a disturbing picture. These were from movies that I saw as kids. This, and TV shows. This is from a TV show from um, Roots. This is Ten Commandments. This is Ben-Hur. The, you know, where the idea of people being held as slaves. And whenever we watched these movies as kids, nobody wanted the people to stay slaves. Because the reality of it is, is slavery is absolutely horrible. And, and, you know, even though there is a sense where we recognize 50% of the world were slaves when Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, even though it was an economic situation, and we recognize some people just used it as almost like an employee situation, at the heart of it was that still the master had the right, no matter what, to take away your family, your, your, your assets, to divide and put you in bad situations, to hardly feed you if they didn't want to. And slavery is something that you say, okay, I can understand it on an earthly plane, but what does this have to do with me spiritually? Well, this is why we brought up this pa- passage. We brought up Romans chapter 6. And for those of you who weren't with us, go back and you study it. Because somebody said to me this week, well, are you, how are you tying this to Christianity? Well, this is, I truly believe God has allowed slavery in human history for us to understand how despicable sin is as a master and how despicable Satan is as a master. And when it says, I want you to drink and I don't care if it destroys your family, it's the master that destroys. It's the master that divides. And so I want you to be sexually perverted. And so you'll do all kinds of wicked things with your body. It will have you do all kinds of things with lying, stealing, cheating, not being a good friend. All of the things that, you know, will divide you from people. That's what Romans chapter 6 goes into in a sense. You're no longer, when you become a believer, you are no longer under the mastery of a slave master of sin but you're under the mastery of God in his righteousness. And so it's critical that we grasp this, that when we're talking about liberty, we're, we're free, but not free to sin. We're free to be obeying God. And I tell you, if you look at your life and sin is telling you, hey, Man, you just got to gotta look at that porn. Hey, you've got to lie here. Hey, you've got to be sexually immoral. Hey, you've got to be a drinker. Hey, you've got to do your drugs. Hey, you've got to just be lazy. Hey, you do your own thing. Hey, don't worry about your responsibilities as a father. Hey, don't worry about your responsibilities as a mother. Hey, don't worry about being a faithful servant in the church. Don't worry about all those things. Listen, you've got to ask yourself, who is my master today? And, and, and sin wants to destroy you you got to remember that everyone has a master today and you're either mastered by god and his goodness or mastered by sin who wants to destroy you 
And that's the thing that we study. I, I got to promote Sunday school. We're talking about Sunday school. One of the things of the lies that are out there is the fact that we talked in Sunday school is that Satan wants to come and offer you what is a false perception of knowledge and in essence liberty. Oh, you can go ahead and you can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want and you'll be okay. But that's a lie. It is an absolute lie and it destroys lives. And so as we went into our text, what we wanted to do is we wanted to learn from Israel's history. All right. We wanted to learn. And this is what what God wants us to see in this text. So, again, when he says, for I don't want you to be unaware, brethren. Okay, verse one, I don't want you to be ignorant. This is what we went over, that our fathers were all under the cloud. He brought up the fact that what the incredible blessings about Israel's history. And I believe when he tied in the fathers, we said that I believe we're talking about fathers from the sense of like Abraham is a father of faith. And so that we, so that we are identified, so that we are identified with him on a spiritual plane. Okay, so we don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized in the Moses in the cloud in the sea. And what this brought up was our understanding of the incredible blessings the Jews had going for them. They had incredible blessings. So why is he bringing this up? So that we can identify with the same escape from slavery that they had. All of the this is what blew me away. Verses 1 to 4 all dealt with Israel's exodus out of Egypt, out of slavery. And I never caught that, that that's what he's trying to, he's trying to picture this. And he's trying to get us to understand this is how these people got out of slavery. And so the point is, is when we look at this, is he doesn't want us to go back into that same type of slavery. And I tell you, I'll never forget, I know, even before I was an unbeliever, even when I was an unbeliever and I watched the movie, The Ten Commandments, and um, I remember when the people from um, the Jews escape Egypt and they're at the edge of the Red Sea and it looks like the Egyptians are going to capture them. This is before Moses splits the Red Sea. And you watch the people start complaining, we should go back, we should go back to Egypt. You know, we're going to die out here. And you think to yourself, what idiot would want to go back into slavery? What person would want to become under the evil taskmaster of the Egyptians again? You're just not thinking. This is what I believe God is trying to get us to grasp. He's trying to get us to understand we have the same incredible blessings. We should not foolishly think wrongly like many of them did. Because we're going to get into the examples of how God had to deal with the people who said, fine, let's go back to slavery. Let's go back and let's, let's forget all the privileges we had. So what we went through is that we said that there, in this text, there are four key points. Number one, we need to understand Israel is not the church. The fathers are spiritual fathers of faith. So number two, we have to understand verses 1 to 13 are all one unit. All lessons need to point to verse 13. So again, look at verse 13. This passage that is often taken out of context is, No temptation has overtaken you. But as such is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Now, I don't want to be too tedious here. Josh, you got your spitballs ready? Okay, make sure. Okay, listen. (laughs) Listen. This verse, verse 13, is so important 
Because God is not saying, oh, you know, you've got a sickness and it won't get any worse because God's not going to give you anything more that you can handle. No, this verse is saying no matter what you face, no matter what financial situation, no matter health situation, no matter what marital situation, no matter what friend situation, that all of a sudden you're not going to come to the point and say, you know what, I just can't take the pressure anymore. I have now justification as to why I can sin. God is saying there's no temptation. And the reason is, as we're going to see, is because of the incredible benefits that you have. All right? So everything comes down to verse 13 in this lesson. We also want to remember that when we talk about the doctrine of election for Israel, it is for the nation, the group, not the individual. Election in the New Testament is for the individual, not for the whole group of the church. Now, boy, I know that's tedious. Like, what in the world does that mean? But see, what we want to understand is that when God says... Israel, you're my chosen nation. When we get down to verses 7, 8, 9, and 10, God's going to kill a lot of those people. And I think a lot of those people aren't believers. And and we need to understand, and I think a lot of people often in certain reform circles don't really understand the difference here. I want you to be theologically more astute. I want you to understand this distinction. I watch people make this mistake all the time. Okay? So understand this is a tedious thing. Josh has got a lot more spitballs ready to go. You need to grasp this and and look at this and understand when sometimes we're talking about the election of the nation of Israel. We are not talking about every individual within Israel. But when we're talking about election in the New Testament, we're talking about every individual. All right? Number four is I want us to grasp always the warning in verses 113 goes to believers and unbelievers. And I'll explain that as we go through this. So here's the, here's the challenge. I don't know where anyone is always spiritually. And I don't think the Apostle Paul knew. There were people who were in the church who were all clearly believers. And there were people who were in the church that were unbelievers. We know that. And so how this is going to play out, we'll watch it play out um, in your own individual life. So here we go. You must learn from Israel's history. You're warned, all right? And this is what we said, that there's, this is the three blessings. So first of all was the miraculous deliverance. Look at verse 1. Our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Go back to the book of Exodus. That cloud that, that led them through through the sea It was incredible. Israel should never have been delivered. But it was God, God who came in and worked not only the ten plagues upon Egypt, but then he led them through the wilderness and he he led them through the sea. And it was an incredible deliverance. And this is why I had you go back last week to Romans chapter 3. There was no way when we understand the depth of sin Romans chapter 3 says there's none who seeks after God. There's none who look for God. There's none who can fix the sin problem. We've got to understand we've been miraculously delivered as well. All right? Then second, the idea of spiritual baptism for verse 2. And all were baptized in the Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And that refers to the fact that Moses was the spiritual leader. And we went back and looked at 1 Corinthians and 12, when it talks about we're baptized into Christ. And 1 Corinthians 11, Christ is our leader. There's a sense where Moses was their leader, but the church has an even better leader, okay? An even better leader through Jesus Christ, because we personally have a relationship with God. 
And then third, spiritual food, verse 3. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank, verse 4 says, the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which, was, which followed them, and the rock was Christ. And we went into John chapter 6. And John chapter 6, Jesus says, my, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And, you know, those are passages that a lot of times people don't go into. Because it seems like so cannibalistic. Or, or what are you really trying to get at? But we went back and we were reminded of the fact that that was a way for Jesus to talk about incredible commitment that we have and how he spiritually feeds us. Do you think about that? That Jesus is your spiritual food, your spiritual drink. And I didn't come up with those expressions. And if you haven't taken time to ponder it, go back. Romans chapter 3 for that. 1 Corinthians 11 and 12 for that. John chapter 6 for that. Those, this parallelism, I believe, is there for us to understand so that when we come and exhort you and tell you, listen, no temptation has overtaken you, why can you say, or why can I say, you better obey it? Well, it's because of the fact that you have this incredible blessing. Well, let's go into this now. Understand, God severely punished the Jews' abuses of liberty. And this is where it gets really challenging. Because look at verses 5 of the 6. And he says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. For they were laid low in the wilderness. Laid low, I'm going to tell you now, means he killed them. Verse 6. Now these things happen as an example for us. Who's us? People who are professing believers. All right? So that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. So let's look at that first word, nevertheless. Nevertheless is a long word. I have someone in my life who always uses the word nevertheless. It, it's, it's a word that basically means but. I went back and I looked, I went back and I looked um, this word up in the Greek, and it's just simply a word that is often translated in other places, but. And I was trying to think, I was like, why in the world would they put nevertheless here? Why would, you, why would the translators want nevertheless? Because wouldn't but seem just as fine? You know, it's a conjunction. It, it's like you're going in a different direction, you know, and just so you carry this weight. You know, when someone says nevertheless, you know, uh, you, know you go to the doctor and he says, you look healthy, nevertheless, <laughs> I found this little spot in your lung, you know. Um, hey, you, you, we're hiring for this new position. You've got all the qualifications, nevertheless, you know, if you ever get a nevertheless, it's often we're going in a totally different direction. We're nevertheless, nevertheless, nevertheless. What is the nevertheless here? The nevertheless was, remember, these people had all these things, but nevertheless, something bad happened to them. Something bad happened to them. You had this miraculous deliverance. You had this spiritual baptism. You had this spiritual food. But nevertheless, something bad happened. And what happened was with most of them. Oh, what's most? We're going to see when we go into the details in the upcoming weeks that we're talking millions of them. Millions of them at, one, at some point. God was not pleased. And when you come to that expression, not pleased, there is something you got to ponder. you got to sit and say, what in the world? Because if this is critical, then I better really, really grasp what does it mean to be pleasing to God. Because if God is not well pleased, then he ends up killing people 
for not being well-pleasing. I better do whatever I can to please God. Warm and fuzzy, warning. Warm and fuzzy, warning. This isn't warm and fuzzy. God killing people, right? Not, not, not the warm and fuzzy, you know, church growth kind of idea here. Um, the idea of well-pleased, they, they didn't meet God's standard. It could be in regards to salvation or it could be in the means of how they live their lives, all right? So we're going to walk, walk through that. This, this word here in verse 5 for well-pleased comes from a Greek word, udokio, which was used 22 times in the New Testament. Listen to some of these verses where the word well-pleased was used. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, when Jesus was baptized, and it says, and Behold, a voice out of heaven said, This is my son, my beloved son, in whom I am well-pleased. So Jesus was meeting the standards of God the Father. He was well pleased. In Romans chapter 15, verse 26, Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints. So here's some verses I'd like you to turn to. And how I always wish you had Bibles, how I wish you didn't always have these little computer phones, but I'm hoping that no matter where you've got, you're going to turn there. Turn to this one. Hebrews 11.6. If we're going to try to put together a theology of something that's so critical, let's look at five key verses that talk about this concept of well-pleasing. And I think that when you we put these together, it's going to give you a good understanding of how this word theologically needs to be brought into your understanding of God. Hebrews 11.6 is a passage in the context that's about faith. And Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith, it's impossible to please him meaning God the Father. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Okay, so I, 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 at the bottom line of if I'm going to please God, it's going to take faith. All right? Faith. I'm going to believe that God is, that he, he's real, and that's going to impact my life. You know, if, if I don't believe that God is, I have no fear of him. I, I'll, I'll, I'll do whatever I want to do. Um, I'll do what I want when I want. I'll say what I want. But I, as a believer, whether it's coming to salvation or how I'm going to live my life, I better have faith. I'm going to believe that God is. Second, turn over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is that great passage we read in our prayer time. It's a passage that deals with God's sovereignty and it all deals with our incredible spiritual position. And Romans chapter 8, verse 8, makes this incredible statement. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. you got to be born again. you got to be a spiritual person to be a person. Unsaved people cannot please God. All right? Pleasing God is critical. You've got to recognize this is something that if I've got my liberty and I've got my freedom and I've got this new master god over me he's the one i need to please and if i'm born again i can do it if i am not born again i don't do it and it is destructive third galatians 1:10 we see the importance of preaching the right gospel so go to the book of galatians it's interesting the apostle paul uses this concept galatians 1:10 and he recognizes there's different messages out there. You know, just like you could come every morning. 
and I could bring a fluff message, I could bring something happy, not necessarily driven by the Word of God, filled with stories. Um, we've been joking that I, you know, you can, you can buy joke books, and I can just tell a lot, I talk a lot more better jokes. But the idea of what it calls us all to do in the Scriptures is to be faithful to God's message, to God's gospel. And the Apostle Paul is arguing this in chapter 1, verse 10, Galatians, when he says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were striving to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Okay, at the heart of, of what he's saying is, I'm going to give the message, the gospel message, that it's faith alone and Christ alone. There's no other message. There's no other way. And that's exclusive. And we've got to keep getting that message out. Because our world is constantly trying to say it is not exclusive. All religions are in. All religions are in. And it makes everybody feel warm and fuzzy. Because how dare you say that this isn't a good religion that I'm following? Well, because God says there's only one way to please him. You've got to come up with his message. Now, turn over to 2 Corinthians. This is what we looked at earlier when I quoted it. But now I'm going to have you look at it. Now, this is where it gets interesting to me. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is talking about the earthly tent that we have, if it could be torn down, um, and, and that we need to keep living for him no matter what. And so he comes to 2 um, Corinthians chapter 5, and I'll pick up in the context in verse 6. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord... But we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we, have, we always have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. So when you're in heaven, this is what you're going to do. And when you're on earth, this is what you're going to do. You're, you're worried about God. You're worried about what you think, what you say, what you do. You, you recognize he's your boss. He's your master. And this is, the, the, this is the characteristic and the trait of a believer. Listen, if you're not concerned about are you pleasing God, I question whether you're a Christian. It's that easy. And, 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 it's, and this isn't just trying to get you know, anything for shock value. It's more like wake up before the end. Because if you were to die today, you don't go to heaven. I want everybody in heaven. The only way to please God is to have faith, to be spiritually, to be born again. And when you're born again, you live a life that exemplifies 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. You're concerned about God. You're concerned about his ways. You're concerned about serving him. You're concerned about living for him. And if you think it doesn't matter, you will be destroyed. You're, you think that you're getting away with things. You think you can jump out a window and go and do your own thing. You will lose. You, you, you think that you can say, I'm going to go my own way. You can't go your own way. Because Satan is laughing at you. He's got you under your thumb, under his thumb, and he's saying, I'm your master, and you think you're free when I'm just worried about destroying your life. And you think you're going on your little string and doing what you want, but I'm the one who's pulling the strings on your life. And, and, and so, as Christians, though, we've got this liberty, and we think, oh my goodness, now I'm saved, I can do whatever I want. And the reality of it is, is we've got to recognize this incredible desire that the believers have to please God, to be oriented, to be thinking about Him. And i got one more verse, and it's pretty powerful. Hebrews 10, 
Hebrews chapter 10. And turn there, verses 35 to 39. Hebrews chapter 10. The context is, you know, don't, don't blow it. Um, Jesus Christ has provided everything for us. He's absolutely sufficient for us. We have this new and holy living way, like verse 19 in chapter 10 of Hebrews. Therefore, brethren, since we have a confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he's inaugurated for us through the, flesh, through, through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from conscience and our bodies washed from pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And as he, he goes through, the author of Hebrews goes through, he comes to verse 39, 35, and he says this, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Meaning, my soul is not well pleased in him. For those of you who know your Bibles, for those of you who know the Old Testament use in the New Testament, there is one passage that is used three times in the New Testament. It's from Habakkuk, chapter, I want to say two. Um, Habakkuk, it says, the righteous one shall live by faith. It's used in Galatians, it's used in Romans, and it's used here in Hebrews. It is one of the most important ideas that we understand that people have always been saved by faith. But here comes in the theology this concept. True believers endure. There are so many passages in the Bible that talk about falling away, not making it to the end. And as I've had to put this together and theologically think this through, this is what I believe what is being taught, taught to us. True believers will go through the hardships, the difficulties, the trials, and they're going to make it to the end. Rest assured, once saved, always saved. But a person who makes the profession of faith, because the Bible is filled with people who make professions of faith, but they don't endure to the end. They fall away. They show themselves not to be believers. And I think that's what he's saying. God is not well pleased. They didn't meet the standard. They didn't have the faith. They were, not, they were trying to do it in the flesh and they could not do it and they fell away. For if you're a believer today, take heart. You will endure. I truly believe the, the Bible teaches that you will make it. You'll be faithful. You'll make it to the end. So why does God tell us this? Because as believers, he wants us to make sure that we are putting forth the required effort. You need, as a believer, to put forth the effort. Who am I trying to please? Who am I trying to please? You're not trying to please your spouse. You're not trying to please your children. You're not trying to please your church. You're trying to please God. And if that's your orientation, you'll always be okay. And everything else will play out. Turn back to First Corinthians. Okay? And, and, and we're going to look at this in First Corinthians... When he says in verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. We now have this understanding that it's the standard that God has. He's expecting believers to play this out and to do it to the end. You don't want to shrink, have, uh, shrink away. You don't want to fall away and say, hey, I don't care what God wants. 
Because that's the person that falls short. Verse 5, for they were laid low in the wilderness. And that expression, laid low, it's the only time it's used in the Bible in the New Testament. In the Septuagint, it's used, in the Septuagint again, technical, it, it's the Greek version of the Old Testament. It's used nine times, and it's used for passages where it talks about slaughtering people, okay, killing people. They were laid low. They were killed. And this is where you get into this idea, God killed people who were his own people. Now, the people of Israel, remember the nation was elect, but the individuals may or may not have been believers. But then I started to think, okay, when we're talking about God killing people, again, Mike, you sure know how to win people over, warm and fuzzies. What does God say? Well, here, turn over to 1 Corinthians 11, communion. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep in the middle of communion. It's the idea that God has caused many believers to die because they weren't faithfully living the Christian life. He takes their life. Then there's this passage in 1 Corinthians 5.5. Same book, 1 Corinthians 5.5. As the Apostle Paul was dealing with these people that were in sin... Um, this person that was in sin, he says, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Because it would be far better for this person to die as a Christian so that he doesn't continue in sin and lose his reward, further reward. So verse 5, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So there you've got a believer, I believe, being killed. The other passage I have, you don't have to turn there, is, was Alexander and Hymenaeus. We don't know in 1 Timothy 1.20 if they were killed or not. They were just turned over to judgment. So where does this leave us? What does this leave us with, okay? This. We're being told not to be cravers of evil. Go back over to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10. And he says, Now these things, okay, now, these things happened in verse 6 as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Now, I love craving sometimes. I'll get cravings for ice cream. I'll get cravings for chocolate. I'll get cravings for, you know, I want to I watch my sports team. I, we, you know, we understand cravings. But when a craving dictates what you do, even though you don't want to do it, guess what? It's your master. It's your control. And we're going to go through the examples in verses 7 through 10 about how these people had sexual cravings, how they had partying cravings, and, had, and all of these things were what drove them. And this is what you need to ask yourself. Are there things that drive you irregardless of what God says? Because if you do, that's a warning. That, listen, you're being told or you're pleasing the wrong Master, I found verse 6 to be fascinating from a technical standpoint. When it says, so that we would not crave, it, the word crave there is not a verb. It's a noun. The only verb at that point is the word be. We would not be cravers of evil. So that's why I put that. Don't be a craver. <laughs> 
Okay? And then he comes back with the verb. Then he comes back with the verb and says, they also craved. So it's the idea when you're, when you say something's a noun that describes a verbal action, it's more a way of, of, of coming out and saying, this is the very essence of what it is. If you're a craver and you're somebody that craves things all the time and they control you, that's the very nature of who you are. And I just think that's an absolutely ingenious technical way for God to convey the nature of what we're talking about. Because the very person that is a craver is a person that cares less about God. Their cravings drive them. And I thought, you know, what sins do I put up to get you to ID, I recognize this. And, you know, there's the picture of the seven deadly sins. So I thought, okay, this is kind of hokey. But, you know, being slothful, being proud, being lusting, being angry, being gluttonous, being greedy, being envious. You know, you, that plays out in so many ways. I saw this funny one on, on I, so I thought I'd bring this to you in more modern. The seven, those seven sins in the digital world. The person that goes into lust, they can't stop going to Tinder Okay, because I guess that's a dating app. Gluttony, there's Yelp, you know, you just got to have more stuff. Um, LinkedIn, where you can, you can move up in your business career. Sloth, you can just sit and watch Netflix all day. Wrath, you know, Twitter, you know, you, you can just, you know, twit things out and get your anger out towards people. Envy, you're just going and looking at Facebook all the time and saying what do other people have, getting more jealous. And then Pride, where you continue to post things on Instagram. Now, you can use any of those internet sites or whatever apps and not be in sin. I get that. But I'm just getting you to understand. God says, don't let cravings drive you. Don't let cravings drive you. Be a person that recognizes that if you're truly free, if you are truly, truly free, then you don't have to have these things own you and control you. And if you say to yourself, listen, I don't have that freedom, then you, you must come to faith in Christ. Because otherwise, you've got to recognize the slavery we're talking about here, the master that owns you is sin and Satan. However that differentiates and works itself out, you understand that they work in cohesion. They want to destroy you. So what I want you to understand is don't listen to the devil's lies. Don't let him be the one that's mastering you. Don't let him be the one that controls you. I wrote this. I said, please take this warning to heart. We must all be faithful to the end of our Christian lives. We must endure to please God. We must realize that we have even greater blessings than the Jews when it came to overcoming sin. Remember, they had a miraculous delivery. They had an incredible leader in Moses. They had, they had incredible spiritual food. Throughout the wilderness, the manna and the spiritual rock that gave them water. But we have Jesus Christ now. Hence, verse 13 is again telling us, we have no excuse to give into our cravings. A true believer will heed this and will endure to the end of a faithful life. Patrick Henry wanted liberty, and he would die for it. Ironically, when a believer comes to faith, there is a spiritual death of the old self. That is what happens to a true believer. But it is not bad. It is good because only death frees you from the sin of slavery. Today, we must understand our liberty is a freedom to, is, is a freedom. We must understand our liberty is a freedom to not sin. Okay? 
And we must nevertheless remember, we must strive to please God. So I ask you today, who do you serve? Is it a wonderful relationship with God the Father who loves you and cares for you and will be your master, but who will be your friend, your father, your lover in the sense that he cares for you? Or do you have a boss that's evil? Because your cravings indicate who you're listening to. Listen, if you went and you worked for a company like McDonald's and, and all of a sudden the, your boss said, listen, go out take out the trash and you went across the street and took out Burger King's trash, you're pleasing the wrong boss. If, if God is saying, listen, I want you to operate in love, patience, kindness, I want you to operate in his gospel, my gospel, and you're serving him, then that's the right master. But if you're not listening to him, you're serving the wrong master today. And this is serious. If your life is more about pleasing sin or Satan, you have a problem. Fix it today, right now. Repent. Call out to God and say, God, I no longer want Satan and sin to be my master. No one wants to be a slave of sin if they're rationally thinking. Look at verse 13. I want to read it again. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you may be able to endure it. There's that doctrine. What in the world? Endurance. That's what we saw in Hebrews chapter 10. So look at your life. Has bondage been broken? Are you living free? Turn to God if you're not. The Bible says you can be free. Free from the power of sin. You can have a miraculous deliverance. Jesus Christ can come into your life and break the bonds of sin, the chains of sin today. Believe. The Bible says... (laughs) It was for freedom that we've been called. The Bible says that when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, he becomes the head of your, the, your, your life. You can have that spiritual baptism. You can be inducted into him. You can have spiritual food where Jesus says, my blood, my drink is the same drink that you can have. My flesh you can have. It's time to live free. And so today I ask you, are you living free? Repent and call for God's help if you're not. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I know for myself that this passage has greatly impacted me. It's helped me to understand the incredible privileges I have and the quality of life I can have in Christ. I have these great benefits. I don't have to listen to Satan's lies anymore. I'm free, and I need to start living like that, and so do you. Let's pray. Father, how I pray that all of us will have this understanding and what a great, great twist that this has taken us to where we might have just talked about liberty thinking that it's almost as if we're free to lay on a beach and do what we want as Christians. But as we come to this text, we come to a greater understanding of how we need to please you in all respects. Help us, God, to understand that, what it means to make you happy. Help people to understand with a true evaluation of their life today. What are they really striving for? Oh, Father, I pray that we grasp this, and I pray that those who've come into our church understand that we're not, we care about love, we care about warm fuzzies, but I know this is a challenging text. But I want people not to be surprised come Judgment Day, that they were striving to please the wrong master, and because they were pleasing the wrong master, they're not getting into heaven. And for those that are believers, that they strive more and more to please you for a greater reward because it does matter. 
It does matter the reward that you get. So, Father, I pray that however this passage falls on someone's heart today, that it will be used in ways of great and productive fruit. In Jesus' name, amen.